Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get access. Access to not only our great daily newsletter, but all the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays, and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, and today I am at the Chicago Council for Global Affairs, where our good friends here at the Council have invited us to a small group live taping of the show. With me here are my colleague Lizzie Lee, who hosts the excellent Chinese-language show Wall Street Today, and the China Project's own Live with Lizzie Lee. And on that show, she interviews academics and analysts and business leaders about China's finance, about um, the economy, about business, about politics. Uh, if you haven't already started watching it, it's just amazing. Lizzie did her doctorate in economics at MIT and went on into media mainly out of exasperation at the paltry choices that Chinese language viewers in the diaspora have before them, like straight up party propaganda or Falun Gong or Guo and Gui. Uh, you get your choice of these three. Or Lizzie now. We can take this. Anyway, hey, welcome to the show. Welcome back. Thanks, Kaiser. Great to be here. Uh, Damien Ma also returns to Seneca here in his hometown of Chicago, where he heads the Paulson Institute's wonderful think tank, Macropolo, which I think puts out some of the smartest analysis and really offers full-stack multimedia, great, highly produced, wonderful stuff with infographics and animations and video, and it's just amazing, and a whole lot more. If you aren't already reading them regularly, you really need to start. Basically, if there are two people who I'd like to have on a show about the 20th Party Congress who aren't actually sitting members of the Politburo Standing Committee, it would be Lizzie and Damien. So thanks, you guys, for making the time. Thank you, Geyser. Uh, Chicago is my adopted hometown. Oh, right, right. Vermonter at heart, right, always. Yeah, Vermonter, a Burlington boy or something like that, right? Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so adopted hometown. 
I stand corrected. Um, but still, I, I do not stand corrected about having two people who I'd really want to have on the show. And let me let me start um, by talking about how, you know, this party Congress, a lot of it was predictable, but there were some pretty big surprises and uh, things that generated quite a bit of chatter among the China-watching types. I suppose uh, we will deal with the elephant in the room, which, of course, was what happened on Saturday, uh, October 22nd in Beijing with Hu Jintao. Uh, before we get into that, though, the other surprise was that Nobody won Macro Polo's fantasy football pick thing, uh, where every year you, or every five years you get like you know pick your pick your seven and see how you do. What was the closest? Who, who came closest? Uh, David Polk, oh, yeah. um, who uh, used to be a six tone. I think you might. I do. You, I you probably David. do know yeah, do know him. He has six out of seven. Um, uh, and in fact, I just met up with him yesterday too. So. So yes, uh, we had. Let's just give the quick quick rundown stats. We had probably. I just looked at the numbers b- before coming here. Probably had more than eight thousand people play it. Um, wow. About a thousand entered the actual competition, and uh, so that's zero <laughs> zero for one thousand and eight players. My God. Um, so there are a lot of reasons, but I think one major reason, one lesson that. Um, that I learned, which actually reinforced sort of the premise of why we did the game. It's yes, it was fun, but there was an intellectual premise, which was trying to test what political scientist Phil Tetlock had always had, you know, has found was sort of you know, on average, expert predictions may not necessarily beat your non-expert your your, yeah. your, your non-average uh, um, you know results, and this uh, more or less reinforced that particular finding. Tetlock would say that we have sort of this, we privilege the insider view when actually it's the outside view that we should be looking at. Is I don't know if that's what happened here. Lizzie, how did you do? Oh, I got Xi Jinping right. So at least <laughs> one of the seven correct. I also uh, did 1, like- 1,007 people got that. Right, I also did like a horse race of all the models. I think the one that won out was by counting strokes. So if you count strokes and you sort of rank all strokes from less to, to, to more, you will get at least five out of the seven correct. Right, you so have the dings, the xis, the lees, and that's basically it. Yeah, ding is only two strokes. So right, yeah, right, he, he right. Or if you predict the premier based on the last name of the former premier, you would also get that right. Right, right. So right. sometimes it's... In fact, if you predicted this premier based on the full name of the former premier... Yes, that's also... Yeah, he's different by more than one gram, though, I have to hey, say. Right, and right, right. actually, it's kind of symbolic. Um, but uh, we can talk more about the new and the old premier later on this conversation. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so... I guess we should talk about the whole Hu Jintao thing. Oh, yes. This will be the oh, last wait, you know what? You know who did get it right, though? Or almost all right? It was Josh Chin. Oh. Uh, yes. The Wall Street Journal. Yeah, yeah. yeah reporting. Yeah. Amazing reporting, actually, from, from Wall yeah. Street Journal. Has he talked? Has he said, has he revealed his source or anything like that? How did he? So, and then the SCMP had the same same lineup. Basically. Right. But I think the Except, SCMP yeah. got the order slightly wrong. So Wang Huning ended up on CCPCC instead of NPC. And Chen Mir was not in, on the uh, Politburo Standing Committee. Right. So CCPCC so. is is notionally one light lower than NPC, right? Yes, yes. Uh, NPC so should be number yep, two. Yep. Right. Uh, number two or number three, depending right. on uh, whether the premier is ahead of it. But. Oh, oh, right, 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 right. I mean, so number three or number four. Um, so, yeah, let's let's get back to that elephant in the room. But, but I'll just add, I mean, okay. before we get to that, I'm, I'll just add one point. I think uh, for a lot of people, this was uh, fairly surprising, I would mm-hmm. say, perhaps yeah, yeah, even yeah, shocking. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, I think general assumptions were that Xi Jinping was uh, quite strong, but I th- I don't think anybody anticipated 
mm-hmm. this level, this extent. And so I think the question we ought to ask rather than fixate on the outcome now is sort of like, what were our priors? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, what were the assumptions that we had going into it that may have changed uh, if you considered this possibly a paradigm shifting election, so to speak, or selection, so to speak? What paradigms did it shift from? And I think that's why the predictions were especially hard, if not impossible, this year. Well, because, I think there was a lot because of, a lot of the assumptions fell apart. Yeah, yeah. But I think there's a lot of, of wishful thinking going into a lot of people's mm. assumptions. Um, I mean, I think everyone had their own kind of uh, cherished, you know, market reformer champion that they w- were hoping was going to get a seat. But I, I looked at it. I mean, I, obviously, I was wrong, too. I was completely wrong, too. But you had Han Jin on, on yours, didn't you? <laughs> oh, that's, that's also that's you, my, that's you know, fault. Yeah, that's completely my fault. So here's my thinking. I thought Xi Jinping would break some norms. If he is to break the age norm, I thought it would, would have been broken in the other direction. He would have kept someone over the age, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the age threshold. Right. And that would be Han Zheng, who has been the uh, the executive vice premier, who has governance experience and who is a very capable leader. Uh, so that's my choice. But apparently he broke the norm in the other direction by kicking down Li Keqiang and Wang Yang from the Politburo Standing Committee, which, to be honest, is probably the biggest surprise. That has not happened before. Kicking down a leader who has not crossed the age threshold from the Politburo Standing Committee. One of many unprecedented things that happened. Yes, exactly. So, I, Damien, you mentioned priors. I think that there were a lot of people who were going into this having read Ling Ling Wei's reporting, I think, mm. uh, and believing that there was meaningful opposition to, to Xi Jinping in, in the run-up, that there were a lot of people who were quite sore over uh, what happened in the Shanghai lockdown, for example, and you know did not think that Li Qiang was going to rise as a result of that. Um, what I came away with, though, what I, I kept thinking was, you know, we, we've we seen all these people writing about how now Xi Jinping, he ran the table, now he's unconstrained, and now... Was he really constrained before? Yeah, I mean, so we heard a lot lots of chatters about, like, internal Xi Jinping among leaders, especially in the spring of this year. But to my knowledge, they're really has not been any concrete evidence of any policy pushback from either Li Keqiang or some more reform-minded leaders, uh, in air quotes. And, I mean, so here's my, my, my thing. I don't think Li Keqiang and Li, Qiang, uh, Li Keqiang and Xi Jinping had a good relationship. Yeah. Li Keqiang was not Xi Jinping's first choice. Um, Li Keqiang, in every sense of the word, is compromise. And I always joke with my friends, Li Keqiang is like that pair of sneakers, half a size too small for Xi Jinping. <laughs> um, you have blisters in your, in your, your feet. It will, it will not be uh, the pair of shoes you would have chosen if you had another chance. But uh, I mean, your shoes are not going to revolt against you and kill you in the literal sense. So I think that's sort of the way I think about the relationship between Xi Jinping and uh, and Li Keqiang. And also, you know, I think it's important to note that state council, China's cabinet, had long lost its policy-making, policy-designing power under Xi Jinping's reign. And that happened during the first term of Xi Jinping. With all the creation of these small leading groups. Yes, with the work leading groups, the uh, the small groups, with Xi Jinping chairing almost all of them. So to the extent that there was some Xi Jinping or some um, sort of internal fight between the Fu and the Yuan, the South and the North of uh, uh, Chinese policy-making body, has long gone. So at this point, uh, Li Keqiang has never and will never 
and you know did never uh, you know present a, a a danger or challenge to Xi Jinping's power. And, and Damien, I've brought this up with you before too, but uh, it just strikes me that one would have to be pretty naive to think that this leadership would come together during this moment when they felt, from their perspective at least, enormous external threat and enormous external. We we saw the absence of this of this phrase in his speech. You know, we saw the absence of of the phrase "period of strategic opportunity." That was absent from his speech, and they clearly see themselves very much under the gun with the United States, especially trying to basically cut China off at the knees as far as they're concerned. With his knee on China's neck, you think they're going to say, this is a good time to pursue collective leadership? No, of course not, right? Well, so I think, to your point, Kaiser, one question that I think people haven't asked enough about it, and this is just one of my first draft ideas that I've been thinking about, so take it with a grain of salt. But, you know, we're focusing on on the person. We're mm-hmm. focusing on the strength of this, you know, Xi Jinping. But I think a- another way to think about it is, well, is it the person or is it the institution? In other words, is it really the strength of Xi Jinping or the weakness of the CCP because of what transpired in the last decade mm. and because of what happened with the Bush Eli, you know, crisis back in 2012? Uh, uh, you know, not not a, not a perfect analogy, but you can ask the same question on, uh, you know, what happened uh, in our politics is 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 it, is it really that Trump was really strong or was it that the GOP was weak? Uh-huh. Mm. Right. And, and so, so, you know, it's, I don't, I, I, I know that's not a perfect parallel, but that's just another way of thinking about, you know, maybe we should be looking a bit more closer at the institution rather than just focusing on, on the person. God, that would be a radical notion. Yeah. I mean, it's so focused right now on, on, on the individual. But let me ask you, Lizzie, we had a conversation just the other mm-hmm. day where you raised a really interesting suggestion. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were talking about Li Keqiang right. and his removal, discarded like that old pair of shoes, as you say. But, um, Li Xiang, who's replaced him, mm-hmm. the the general knock on him is that, oh, he screwed up the Shanghai lockdown, right. he was terrible, all that stuff. But there are a couple of things that you've said about him that I thought were really interesting. One is that he's actually quite respected by the business community yes. in the Yangtze River Delta where mm-hmm. he has served. Mm-hmm. That is, I mean, not just in Shanghai, mm-hmm. but in Zhejiang and also in Jiangsu. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the economic powerhouse of China that he actually is well-liked, not just by the Chinese business mm-hmm. community, but by MNCs as well. The other thing that you said, which I thought was even more interesting, was that you think that his close association with right. with C might actually mean he's comfortable speaking uncomfortable truths to right. C. Right. That's basically my point. I mean, all Li Qiang, I think, I mean, there are like two strands of thoughts. One is just like Li Qiang is completely, you know, it's just not capable of governing China. He's just like a Xi Jinping acolyte, right? He's going to do whatever Xi Jinping directs him to do. That's one strand of thought. Another strand of thought is, oh, you know, Li Qiang is the only person who has governed all three of Jiangsu, Zhejiang, and Shanghai. He clearly knows the business community. He knows how to run the richest provinces of China. So Li Qiang is the most uh, capable candidate for the premier. I think both are probably too extreme. Um, my take is probably somewhere in the middle. If you compare Li Qiang's uh, portfolio with, say, Li Keqiang's portfolio, yes, Li Keqiang had more central governing experience, but uh, the only provincial governance experience Li Keqiang had was back in Liaoning, which is uh, this you know economic backwater in northeast China. The Rust Belt. Province, yes, right. that that part. So you know, how do you compare? 
people's resumes. If you want to focus on central governance experience, yes, Li Keqiang won out. But uh, in terms of economic governance, which is going to be the main uh, main part of the premier's job, and Li Qiang actually arguably had more experience. So that's the first point I would make. And second point is, you know, so to the extent that Xi Jinping trusts Li Qiang's um, experience in, in Shanghai, Zhejiang, and Jiangsu, and Xi Jinping perceives uh, Li Qiang as a loyal person, Li Qiang's information channel might be more transparent to Xi Jinping, and Xi Jinping's feedback to Li Qiang might be more candid. So, um, you know, no one is speaking truth to power in Communist Party these days, but uh, Li Qiang might feel more comfortable giving Xi Jinping the true information on the ground, uh, especially, uh, you know, when it comes to China's economic woes, which there are many. Yeah. So that's uh, my take of things. And also, um, so, 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 I mean, so we, uh, we, we spoke previously about uh, people's impression uh, of Li Qiang. I would say there are three camps of people and they have very different perceptions of Li Qiang. Mm -hmm. The business community generally treat Li Qiang with regard. These are the people who experienced the opening of star market in Shanghai, mm -hmm, who, mm -hmm. uh, you know, who experienced the first Tesla factory in Shanghai. They thought Li Qiang was pro-business, is friendly, uh, knows how business works, and is welcoming, welcoming uh, in the, especially the foreign executive community. The second group of people are Shanghai bureaucrats, and they clearly favor Han Zheng over Li Qiang. Right. They, told me uh, Han Zheng was just much more capable person than, than Li Qiang. But thinking back, I think it might be that Shanghai bureaucracy is, is very cliquish. And Han Zheng was a Shanghai native, spent his entire career in Shanghai. Uh, Li Qiang was very much parachuted into Shanghai. So that might be the reason thinking back. And the third group of people are the Shanghai aunties, Shanghai dama. Uh, <laughs> they experienced the the worst of the, the, of the lockdown. And they... Um, are pretty ruthless um, in their judgment of Li Qiang. So, you know, depending on who you who you speak to, I think um, Li Qiang, I still have a question mark over his face. I think we'll wait for a few months to see. And Li Qiang doesn't have much time. Uh, you know, after this week, we'll probably see Li Qiang being uh, promoted to a vice premier role. Right. So he will have a three-month internship session to learn how to govern, you know, the central government, how to run all the agencies. There are hundreds of them. And then uh, if you can hit the ground and, uh, and, and run, I think that's sufficient to make up of uh, make up his lack of central governing uh, experience. And if, if he's not a smart enough person, I will see a disappointment. But let's give him some time. One of the things that, that uh, came out of this party congress is the end of the Communist Youth League faction. If it was ever meaningful to speak of a Communist Youth League faction, you know, under Hu Jintao during that era, uh, you know, so we, we've seen factions come and go in China. There, we used to speak all the time about a Shanghai clique. What are we? What are the meaningful factions now? I mean, it seems to me that there's a lot of them who spent a lot of their uh, formative careers in Zhejiang and serving simultaneously with Xi Jinping. Is it meaningful, Damien, to speak about a? Zhejiang faction, and secondly, is it meaningful to speak about a Beihang mm. clique, uh, the Beijing University of Astrono Aeronautics and Astronautics, where it seems like a lot of uh, the, the new provincial party secretaries and people who are moving into, up in the ministries and therefore into the state council are from these, not just technocratic backgrounds, but specifically from Beihang and hard sciences. 
Well, there's also a Mishu clique now, right? Yeah, sure, sure. Three out of the, three out of the four were uh, former, former secretaries of uh, Xi Jinping uh, at, at various times. So I guess that might be the best route to to uh, promotions these days. But um, I I think it's more than just true, John. It's true that a lot of the people that are currently at the top, it, it almost looked like he sort of took his. Zhejiang team and kind of brought them up to the top right. this time. Uh, it does look a bit like that, but I think it's beyond that. If you look at uh, you know the broader Politburo and some of the other people that 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 got promotions, it almost seems like he's got kind of the coastal provinces fairly locked down mm-hmm. from Shandong mm-hmm. down to Guangdong. You know, if you think about Li Xi and, and other folks, so you know there aren't there aren't red or blue provinces in China, but if there were Xi provinces, he sort of just kind of got the coast. Right, which is pretty significant if you think about the uh, you know what percentage of GDP that is for China. Probably, I'm going to guess probably forty percent. And in some ways, that at a minimum. No, I think it's more. I, I think if you, possibly if, more. But if you just, if you just, look at the sort of factional composition before, uh, when we talk about the CYL faction, their power base was often in hinterland provinces. Their preferences were for inland development, for balancing this sort of terribly unbalanced coastal thing for. Not so, you know, being so focused on uh, foreign direct investment and things like that, and, and more interested in um, sort of, you know, moving development focused in, in into the hinterland. Uh, so I think that's why it's an inter- interesting right, paradox right, right, right. is that he's got the lock on sort of elite provinces, right? The most, but then he's obviously has a bit of a populist streak in terms of in terms of the way he's you know optically projecting himself, right? And so it's interesting to kind of see that paradox and 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 how that leads to you know. Um, you know, he's big into poverty, poverty reduction, and he's that, that was one of the big goals he announced. Um, what about what about technocracy? The return of these technocrats, Lizzie? Do you want to yeah, talk about that? Yeah, so so I think you know if there's one piece of good news coming out of this uh, this round of party congress is a race of STEM stars and nerds are in again. <laughs> That's good news for many of our audience, I guess. And uh, I want to. You mean they're to, all nerds out there? Yeah, they're all nerds out there. Um, That's and, a rough assessment of the Seneca <laughs> audience. But um, you know, if you if you count, at least six of the the popular members have strong qualifications in science and technology backgrounds, uh, from environmental engineering to uh, space program to public health, and I think people are familiar with Xinjiang Party Secretary Ma Xinrei, who's currently only sixty three years old, mm-hmm. and Zhejiang Party Secretary Yuan Jiajun only. 58 um, years old. Oh, by the way, promotion of Yuan Jiajun will be interesting to watch. If he um, you know, gets um, Chongqing party chief, that's going to be a promotion for him because Chongqing is one of the four uh, Zhijiaxi in, in, in Beijing that really gets... He actually worked on the Mars rover project, too. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And uh, I mean, t- t- to be fair, like these are not you know, bureaucrats who got like trophy degrees after they are well established in their uh, official career, they are actually scientists. And they're this literal like, rocket scientists. Yes, they're literal <laughs> rocket scientists. And, you know, also the Minister of Education, Huai Jinpeng, was a very famous uh, computer scientist in China. So this is like a Turing Award winner becoming uh, the governor of, uh, of uh, New York. So to speak, so it's kind of surprising, and also you know, uh, in addition to Yuan Jiajun and all the space scientists, there is uh, Li Ganjie, um, Shandong Party Secretary. Mm-hmm. There's Chen Jining, uh, Beijing Mayor, who was rumored to be the next uh, Shanghai Party Secretary, and there's um, Liao Ning Party Secretary uh, Zhang Guoqing, and there's uh, Yin Li, who's 60 year old. Uh, 
public health expert who will probably be the next party secretary of Beijing. We have all those experts. So what does it mean? So I think one thing that works in the nerds' favor is that they don't have strong political coalitions and strong political affiliations growing up, and they are considered relatively clean in terms of factional affiliations. Also, you know, scientists, I think, well, by default, are not that corrupt. And that's something that Xi Jinping values a lot. And more importantly, China perceives itself as locked into this uh, rivalry, especially over high tech with the United States. So to the extent that uh, China wanted to really turbocharge its STEM program, those scientists and and, and technocrats are probably uh, gonna be coming in handy. That's a myriad of things. That they're part of the reason they're being promoted is because they're perceived as being clean and not just sort of politically clean, but also in terms of their not having been tainted, uh, brought you know, with the brush of corruption. Um, Jamie, and we're in Chicago right now, or I'm in Chicago right now. In, <laughs> That's a in, very interesting uh, segue. <laughs> I, I don't know where no, no, you're going no, no, with this. Because part of the reason that we're meeting is uh, we're getting together this informal group that, that you and I are part of, and one of the things that we're going to be talking about is generation skipping. Mm-hmm. Right and how how there it's in the talent pipeline. There's kind of this weird conspicuous gap of people, and and it's it's a topic that we're going to be bringing up. It it strikes me, and this is something that Lizzie pointed out to me. I'm curious to hear what both of you have to say about this. That uh, there's this phenomenon happening in China as well, where um, people who spent their 30s and their 40s, the really formative years of their political careers, uh, during the Hu and Wun era, eras of rampant corruption, they are regarded as being all sort of tainted by that, that era, or whether or not they themselves were directly corrupt, and that there is a dearth of leaders right now in their 50s and early 60s uh, who are up for promotion. Uh, have you seen this phenomenon? And, um, you know, Lizzie, you can riff on this if you want, of course, this is, is your, sort of your idea I'm borrowing. So, Well, that's interesting. Uh, I, I mean, from a, from a data standpoint, uh, there isn't anybody, uh, I think, in the post-70s that's right. in the central committee, so they didn't promote anybody in the, in, the, in you know sort of who are in their early fifties. So Gen X getting skipped again, man. This is happening to me in America and China. It's just terrible. It's just not not fair. Yeah, but Gen X created a bunch of amazing companies, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what? <laughs> didn't we want into, political power. Just didn't get into politics. No, no, we didn't. Yeah, you're right, yeah. Lizzie. So yeah, so I mean, I think generation is the interesting, important notion in Chinese politics. And, you know, I think it's Li Cheng from the Brookings Institution who coined those terms, the 5G uh, 5G generation, the 6G generation, Mm -hmm. referring to uh, the decade they were born in. If you look at the the 5G, the fifth generation of Chinese leaders, these are the people who experienced the Great Famine uh, when they were young, and they were sent down to the countryside. Those those are the sent down youth, those are Xi Jinping's. And uh, they also... Uh, you know, experience a cultural revolution in their twenties. So their, you know, their outlook on the world is clearly different from this from the generation that came after the sixties generation, who, uh, you know, came of age at the very start of the reform opening era, who sort of spent their career when China was gradually opening up to the world, when China had a period of political stability and economic growth, which was cut short by the tumultuous um, period of time in the late 80s. Right. And the 70s generation is, you know, completely different. These are the people who, you know, spend their youth and their midlife generally in stable times. Mm-hmm. And they, many of them study abroad, gain degrees, and, you know, they're 
view of the world in in China are clearly very different. So in terms of generation skipping, I don't think the 60 generation are going to be skipped out of the Politburo. I was referring to the Standing Committee, the top leadership. And I think that is probably going to be true. If you hold that Xi Jinping stays for um, one more term, the two youngest member on the Politburo Standing Committee now or Ding Xiaoxiang was already uh, 60 year old. And perhaps uh, if we are generous about the career prospect of Yuan Jiajun, Yuan Jiajun is currently 58 year old. Those are those will be the, the, the younger generation. But uh, in general, the 60 generation, I mean, they might be in the standing committee, but I don't think they stand chance anymore to, to be the, the supreme leader of China. Um, so who are the next generation leaders? Those are going to be uh, the Zhuge Yujie's, um, the, the, the Shen Yuyue's. <laughs> Whiny you know, millennials, just, I mean. Yeah, in the, you know, currently, you know, doing sort of mid-level uh, jobs, um, but uh, are sort of... Um, Tell us about Zhuge Yujie. So I don't know much about Zhuge Yujie, but uh, he's uh, this uh, bureaucrat who, who ha- who's sort of a rising star, an amazing rising star, who was born in the 60s and keeps rising through uh, ranks in Shanghai, who's really like a political powerhouse in, in China. Um, you know, that's all I can say about him for now, but I should caution that um, previous rising stars that suffer uh, sort of unexpected tragedies in their political career, for example, Chen Mir, who had his reputation for, um, you know, being the next supreme leader of China. Uh, what, what's going to happen? Is he going to get a, a decent appointment? I think Tian, Tianjin? Yeah, so, so the word on the, you know, in, in, so the word is that he's probably going to be rotated to Tianjin, which is going to be a disappointment for Chen Mir. Yeah. If Chen Years, you know, reappointed to um, to Shanghai or Beijing, the the career the career prospect for Chen is going to be completely different. Chen Mir is actually one of the the, uh, the people I got wrong in the right, fantasy yeah, football race. I thought he's definitely, he's, you know, he's to the better chance than Tai Chi, but apparently Tai Chi won out. Did you get Chen Mir correct? You got Tai Chi though. Tell, tell us why why did you pick Tai Chi and tell us a little bit about Tai Chi, Damien. Uh, well, our our assumption was that he was somebody that we thought Xi Jinping really trusted yeah. um, because he was already on the National Security Council, working under Li Zhangshu in the previous term. He and was he's with him for many provincial assignments. I mean, right. he was in Fujian back yeah. in the and 90s. and you know, and our read was that in the in the just in just the previous Politburo Standing Committee, Li Zhangshu was probably probably the closest to Xi Jinping mm-hmm. on there. And so, if Tai Chi was Li Zhangshu's guy, then I think that gave that gave. In our mind, gave him a leg up, a surrogate for Lee. And plus, if you look at his position, it sounds like he's going to have a pretty, pretty significant national security portfolio, mm-hmm. just as he had already done on the National Security Council. So, so that's why we we picked him. And um, um, but 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 I don't think we have I, we haven't talked about. I think one thing I think I tweeted about this that we're going to have a higher gray hair to black hair ratio, right? Right. Yeah. On the standing up, committee, the that's, that's, out now, that's okay. the silver lining, don't you think? I mean, <laughs> the I mean, silver there's lining just a lot more uh, silver hair these days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I just can't, I have to tell this. So Taiji is a avid social media user. He, oh, yeah. He's like Donald Trump level uh, Twitter addict. Uh, like he, at some on point, yeah, like on Weibo, on when, Weibo? When, when Weibo was still cool uh, back in the day. And when Tsai Chi was uh, uh, was like official in, in Zhejiang, he had like six million followers on Weibo, and he would like you know comment on people's tweets or or, or, or um, you know micro blogs, and people call him Tsai Shu Uncle Tsai, <laughs> and sometimes people would like oh Tsai Shu please come here and see what's going on, and he would actually reply to those people. So that was Tsai Chi, but that was when he was in in Zhejiang. In 
Beijing, I mean, as a native Beijinger, I have to say Cai Ji is not my favorite. It's probably um, one of the worst leaders Beijing I've seen in my lifetime. I haven't seen that many, to be honest. Well, exactly why. I mean, because it was in 2017 after the fire. Yes. Um, there was this terrible fire yeah. in, in a district in southeastern Beijing yeah. that was heavily, you know, Pop- it was very analogous to the fire that happened in London. Um, Yes. In, in that there was yes. sort of a similar socioeconomic group that was affected by it. Yes. So, um, you know, if you're from Beijing, you know, there are lots of migrants in, in Beijing. And mm-hmm. those mm-hmm. people are like the blood cells of Beijing. They keep Beijing working. They're in the service industries in Beijing. Uh, they're in the construction sites. And, you know, and they, the they, delivery they drivers live on it. Yes, and, yeah, yes. Yeah. And, you know, those are people. And w- we love them. And they usually live on the outskirts of, of Beijing. That's where the fire happened. And I after that, Cai Qi led this basically forced eviction uh, operation, just drove those people out. And we saw this video footage of uh, public security officials sort of just ravaging people's homes, you know, smashing people's furniture and just drove people out. And there was this video of Cai Qi um, that got leaked, on, leaked online. Cai Qi basically directed the whole thing and asked for this um, you know, cut and thrust, thrust kind of technique. Um, what was the phrase he used? Uh, like, see blood on the sword. So yeah, so Hong. So let's see some blood on the knife. Yeah, that's the that's a kind of stuff. Right. You know, this is a fascist language that he used. So I think you know many Beijingers were angry at, at Tai Chi for for doing that. I mean, there was a moment of like public reconciliation afterwards, but uh, I think you know Tai Chi is not a, a fan. Uh, many Beijingers do not treat Tai Chi with with much much respect. I mean, for many of those officials, it's it's kind of weird. I mean. The earlier you go back in their career, the more likable they were, including Xi Jinping himself. I mean, when Xi Jinping was official in Fujian and, and, and Zhejiang, people thought Xi Jinping were pro-business. Were pro-business. Mm-hmm. And he would talk about Hollywood movies with American diplomats. And, and, and you know, he, yeah. he just seems like a totally different person now. The institution changes people, yeah. <laughs> for sure. Imagine uh, that. The, the one, the one person we haven't talked about a little bit because you talked about sort of the younger, younger generation, younger folks is uh, Li Shulei. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh. You know, sort of pro- probably uh, by all, uh, by all, um, on appearances, you know, young Wang Kuning in waiting. Uh, and he just became, oh, officially became the yes, propaganda. the propaganda uh, chief. Yeah. Oh, did you see the Li Shulei uh, Harvard diary or whatever it's called? No, I, have, no, I haven't seen it. Yeah, it's already, uh, it's already censored on Chinese internet. But it's, uh, it. I haven't seen this either. It's kind of like the Li Shulei version of America Against America. Ah. Um, but uh, I think I got a glimpse of it before it was censored and now it's censored out. But Li Shulei is a Let me just, just in case somebody listening doesn't know what America Against America. So uh, Wang Huning in the late 1980s spent three, Three, oh, oh, just no, just a few months actually, just a few months traveling uh, in the United States, just visiting scholar at UC Berkeley and other places. And he wrote this book that he called "America Against America," Big Wolf, I mean, right. in, in which he he espouses this kind of bizarre uh, kind of cultural conservatism, right. kind of an right. Alan Bloom style right. cultural conservatism, right. and sort of sees America going down this politically correct path of right. self destruction and, and decadence. Uh, I think there were a lot of people who who wanted to read this as uh, a, 
the equivalent of a you know Saeed Qutba, uh from you know the he who was one of the early progenitors of the Muslim Brotherhood who would also you know sojourned in America and wrote about lascivious American women. He wrote this great chapter about you know attending this church dance and right. the writhing of the the hips and the full lips and all so anyway yeah, it's, but, uh, it's not like that it's not like that it's yeah. actually a pretty interesting book yeah, but Wang Huning also wrote about uh, gaming he apparently he was like an avid gamer f- yeah. uh, for a brief period of time and he regret that because gaming was addictive um, Wang Huning was into gaming <laughs> for, but that was um, that, that's was not playing, the, like World that, of Warcraft that, that, yeah, that was not <laughs> the, the main uh, the theme of, of his work but uh, no. Li Shulei is officially the propaganda chief of China and to be honest, I think it's good news. Sorry, now I'm having images of the propaganda chief being a gamer. You know, <laughs> like right. that, that's just pretty interesting. That's yeah. a pretty interesting image. Yeah. But uh, I mean, Li Shuli is called uh, Li Shentong, uh, child prodigy. Yeah. Uh, he's you know admitted to Peking University, uh, one of the two best universities in China, at a very young age, and he has this very um, precocious writing on U.S.-China, U.S.-China relations, and Western culture. Um, so we'll see. Damien, do you think Li Shuli's promotion was? Uh, a force in the positive direction for Chinese propaganda work? I, I don't know the guy well at all. I just know that it, it seemed like, um, you know, I you know I think for Xi Jinping, mm-hmm. um, ideology and, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, optics is quite important mm-hmm. um, for his politics. And so, you know, um, obviously I think he would want somebody who would succeed Wang Huning at some point because right. he really seems to like Wang Huning. And so, yeah, uh, but, I, but I, I, I'd be curious to hear more about, so what's, have you read the diaries? So I got a glimpse of uh, Li Shulei's Harvard diary, diary, but I didn't read it in, in full detail and didn't save a copy of it because it, you know, it was censored out of Chinese internet. But I'm pretty sure there are people who have saved a copy of it. Yeah, uh, so we'll, let's get yeah, our hands read on it and, and report back. Yeah, no, I will. I will want to do a show with you to talk oh, about to talk this. about Li Shulei's yeah, yeah. yeah Harvard diary. So I mean, irrespective of of what you know, wh- whether China does become sort of more ideologically rigid or you know really enforces a more you know kind of ideological uniformity uh, what's clear to me is that see, viewed from America looking at you know see having run the table and you know, filled not just the standing committee but the Politburo itself with with his own people the, the United States will conclude well I mean people who have been sort of espousing this idea that the contest between China and the United States is essentially an ideological one whether it's between Know, democracy and authoritarianism or democracy and Marxism, Leninism, Muslim and God or what, what have you, they're going to get a whole lot of oxygen. They're going to be, you know, triumphalist. Mm-hmm. They're going to declare themselves having been vindicated. And that's just going to lead on this, just in this another downward spiral. So mm-hmm. I'm just deeply depressed. Tell me some good news. Um, is there, is there, okay, for, for example, who's going to take over the, the economic leadership um, there, there are you know some really important people like Guo Shuqing and, uh, and yeah, who, who have been stepping mm-hmm. down now from uh, who are now you know retiring right. who was headed CB, uh, CBRC CBIRC now I guess right 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 so uh, PBOC Governor Yi Gang uh, will will retire um, he will probably get some advisory role which is typical as uh, Huang Jifan did and Zhou Xiaotuan did by the way went to Indiana University I believe oh he yes did. yes yes, All right. yes. Well, he was a yeah, he Next was a door. tenured professor at one of the American universities before he moved back to to China. So that yeah. said something. Yeah. And uh, I think so. So I mean, Yi Gong has you know international reputation, and uh, for 
you know, finance people internationally I've interacted with all have very good things to say about Yigong. So uh, his por portfolio is, is important. And uh, the person who's rumored to take over Yigong's governor role is uh, Ying Yong. Currently, a vice mayor in in, in Beijing, um, but uh, who's also has a really strong financial background. Um, he was in Wall Street. He, um, he was on Wall Street for many years. He got his degree in the United States, I believe, and also um, Ying Yong is a specialist in currency management. Ah. Uh, so that's probably, you know, uh, and also he was in, in uh, PBOC during different, uh, you know, sort of vice uh, governor level roles for many years. Well experienced and um, lots of experience there. So I think, you know, in terms of economic policy, there's not much surprise uh, in terms of monetary policy management. Uh, the other person is He Lifeng, uh, who has been rumored for long to be uh, Liu He's successor. Right. He Lifeng, um, you know, also a close, cl close aide to Xi Jinping, um, is perceived to have strong background in economic management. His style is probably a little different than Liu He's. Um, but I think in terms of the economic lieutenants, China will be in good hands. And I think that's actually crucial for China to sort of uh, restore investment, co uh, investors' confidence uh, in its economy. That's um, that's all I have to say. But uh, those positions will not be confirmed before next March. So we'll wait for a few months, and things can change within the, the next few months. Who do you hear is being tapped to replace Li Qiang as he moves out of Shanghai? Who's going to run Shanghai? So yeah, so the person I hear is Chen Jining, the current mayor of Beijing. So Chen Jining is an environmental scientist. Right. Um, I mean, I, I guess like he's because of his success was cleaning up air pollution in, in Beijing under his uh, his uh, leadership, or at least during his time as mayor of Beijing. I think Shanghai people are going to be happier, or at least slightly on the margin happier than. Uh, happier with Chen Jining than, than Li Qiang. That's my, my perception. Mm -hmm. and uh, so, so actually, can we stay on the, the, the vice premier? So mm -hmm. oh, yeah. you know, Ding sure. Shishang is going to be the EVP. Yeah. He Li Feng is probably going to get the other. So that, that's, that's two out of four. Question. That's a good that, that's so a I, question. I, you know, so maybe we can we can start another pool or something or poll about yeah, who, let's who the other who the other two that. VPs are going to be the, yeah, the so, vice premiers. So yeah, so those are going to be the successors successors of Sun Chunlan and Hu Chunhua. And Sun Chunlan's portfolio is health, uh, education, and science. Hu Chunhua's portfolio and zero COVID and zero COVID toward yeah. the end. Yeah, Hu Chunhua's portfolio is agriculture. Um, so, I mean, this is my pure speculation, but I think there's going to be some you know, new division of labor among those two roles. The original division of labor is not quite correct, if you ask me. That's How can you, like, like lump, uh, you know, health with science and technology and then put agriculture in a separate category? This does, does not make much sense to me. I think science and education is probably probably get more importance in terms of um, those division of labors, but we'll, we'll wait and see. I think um, South China Morning Post also had a um, article just coming up this uh, this week on how foreign policy is probably going to be a part of the portfolio of at least one of the premiers. But we'll so maybe we'll one of the technocrats might might has a shot of at, at the, nice at the VP, right? Yeah. So uh, so there's seven of them, so that's not that hard to pick, no. mm -hmm. pick one out of seven. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, speaking of foreign policy, you mentioned uh, one of the other surprises with it was that the U.S. ambassador or the ambassador, Chinese ambassador to the U.S., Xin Gang, has now uh, been named to the Central Committee. What's the significance of that? So, 
you know, Qing Gong, as we know, his promotion to the U.S. Uh, the Chinese ambassador to the U.S. was rig- was a surprise to start yeah. with. People yeah. th- people thought it would, it would be Xie Feng, uh, who's uh, the the, the um, the vice minister in charge of the North American portfolio, but uh, so this is Qing Gong's second round of surprise promotion. I think it sp- speaks to uh, Xi Jinping's trust in Qing Gong. It also speaks to the importance of U.S.-China relations in general. But uh, it's going to be a big promotion for for Qing Gong. And the question is, who's going to be the next ambassador to the to the U.S.? I think you know if if you ask me now, I would say Xie Feng is probably the 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 best, the most qualified candidate. But uh, we will wait and see. And what that means in terms of U.S. and China relations, um, you know, now we have Wang Yi and Qing Gang as two top diplomats. Yang Jiechi is retiring. Yang Jiechi is re- retiring, and uh, so Wang Yi is. We mean earlier in his career is actually this very suave, uh, cosmopolitan mm-hmm. diplomat, mm-hmm. but later uh, got you know more uh, wolf warrior like <laughs> uh, later in his career at least you know that's the word on the on street and Qing Gong is a little lycanthropy yeah so Qing Gong is a little hard to tell I don't know what you guys think about Qing Gong Qing Gong seems a little stiff to me um, but I also you think him. I have I have no idea what to make of him I mean sometimes yeah. it seems like he, he handles himself very very well in yeah. some media engagements and other times he comes off, yeah, very poorly. Yeah, but he also, I guess he's also in all kinds of like community activities in the U.S. He's yeah. doing media engagement. So he seems, uh, you know, eager to build those relationships in the United States. Um, I guess it's still a little hard to tell. So just now we talked about how uh, science and education are going to be very, very important. Um, this is a big part of what we used to call the Red New Deal, yeah. mean, uh, real reforms in the education system and a real uh, renewed emphasis on the hard sciences. Um, it used to be that promotions within the party really depended on your how, how well you grew, you know, GDP growth in whatever ge- geography we're responsible for. W- things are different now. Mm-hmm. Um, what are going to be the new hard measures that people are going to be looking for? Damien, what do you think? Do you think that, for example, um, your ability to deliver nanometers? Yeah, nanometers <laughs> I'm exactly. Yeah. Like the, 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 it's going to go in reverse. That's the most obvious like, answer. Get down <laughs> but the to lower like, it is, the better, exactly, right? The Not the, the higher better. it is. Right, right, right. So yeah, so lithography is that going? That's going to be the new. No, I mean, I, I, you're, you say that sort of jokingly, but I think we, we we mean it. I mean, after October seventh, after the announcement of of the, the really kind of sweeping uh, export controls. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is this is the new measurement, you think? I mean, th- there was, uh, I think, a much stronger emphasis on talent and human capital mm-hmm. than I've seen um, in, in, you know, in past party congresses and for obvious reasons. And I think Xi Jinping's been thinking about human capital broadly, both sort of the political personnel and also, you know, the technocrats and people that are going to execute on what he hopes uh, that China will uh, uh, become strong and, uh, you know, leaders in. So... Talent's a tough problem. Yeah. Uh, a lot, you know, it's it's a it's a hard problem for 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 anybody to solve. So, um, and a lot of it also depends on you know um, our response and our actions here in the United States, right? Because it's not just depending on what you know what what China does or says. You know, if they want to have a reverse brain drain. Well, you know, there there are ways to kind of you know prevent that from happening, d- depending on how we react and respond. So, t- talent is just a very, very tough, 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 tough situation, and uh, no few countries get it right. I can't believe that we've gotten to this point without actually having talked about the Hu Jintao exit. 
Uh, how did we miss that? Okay, but so let's let's pick that up now. But I want to also do two more topics before we wrap up here, and we can try to dispense with them hopefully pretty quickly, and you guys can can and get, deliver your your wisdom with a great level of authority and finality. The other two that I'm constantly being asked about, which honestly, I, I, I my answer is like, I don't think you should have expected to see a big announcement. The two are, of course, what's going to happen with the zero COVID policy? And the second is, what does this mean for Taiwan? So in any order. So who, who wants to, let's, let's do Hu Jintao first. Oh, let's do Hu Jintao first. Do we have to do Hu Jintao? Yeah, again? I guess we have to. We're obliged yeah, to. Yeah, okay. So let's do Hu Jintao. So... So now we have the the fuller uh, footage of what actually transpired yeah, on CNA that footage, day. Right. Uh, yes, and I, you know, at this point, I'm just gonna say people are gonna believe whatever they want to believe. I showed the footage to multiple people, and it just strengthened their prior belief of what actually <laughs> happened and what they what they believe what, what what actually happened are completely different. My view of this is probably more on the side of health crisis um, as opposed to anything more sinister. Right. And um, I mean, there were just a few few, few things I, I, I wanted to say. First, it's not a good, good you know, picture for a Communist Party to publicly broadcast internal sieges and, 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 you know, sort of those um, moments of disharmony within their leadership. Communist Party is all about projecting strength and projecting unity. Right. The idea of showing that moment of weakness in front of international audience is just not how how they, how, how they do this. Right. Also, it's not Xi Jinping's personal style. You know, if there's one word you, you can use to describe Xi Jinping and summarize his whole life is Ding Li. He is a mm -hmm. very patient person. He is a very deliberate user of power. The way Xi Jinping build a case against you is by sort of closing in on you gradually, first investigating into your secretaries, your, your associates, your proteges, yeah. and then, you know, sort of slightly are circling in around you. It's like plucking all the hair off a chicken. That's a, that's a word we <laughs> that's use. Good. Yeah, so for, for Wang Qishan, for Meng Jianzhu, for Sun Lijun, that's a, that's a kind of style Xi Jinping has. I mean, doing like a public humiliation episode, that's just not Xi Jinping's style. And also, you know, Hu Jintao is not a viable challenge to Xi Jinping at this point. Whatever power Hu Jintao might have possessed at one point, which was not that great to start with, is, is really long gone. So does it really make sense for Hu Jintao to humiliate the party elder in this way in front of the international TV? I honestly don't think so. Um, but uh, I think the symbolic meaning of that episode is probably more important. This, you know, senile leader, uh, perhaps permanently retreating from the center of power, uh, this generational shift in power, and now Xi Jinping's show. Yeah. So there's a metaphorical meaning in that, but that's sort of the, the way I read the, the Damien, do you agree with that, that assessment largely? Well, again, um, I agree with, with Lizzie that there's just so many different interpretations of it. I would say the way to think about, the, the way to be more concrete about this is, is let's wait for some potential signals to see how they handle a couple things, both on the personnel and policy side. One is, uh, you know, how do they handle uh, somebody like Hu Chunghua? Mm. And, you know, if he just, you know, rides quietly off into uh, retirement, that's fine. But if there are some other possible outcomes for that, then I think we would have to adjust our, our assessment of what happened. Uh, and also on the policy side, again, on you know, we, we talk about zero COVID. So what do they do on zero COVID? Yeah, so let's, let's, if, if there's let's deal be with a, that one now too. If there's going to be a plan B or sort of a pivot to more of a coexistence approach, uh, you know, 
I, I, I don't see it, at least not in the near term, at least not in the fourth quarter. Right. Um, and uh, I think the best thing we can hope for is that they, they start to announce or they start to ar- articulate a plan B or exit strategy around the National People's Congress. But planning that out and, and executing that yeah. is going to take a long time. Mm-hmm. I, my right? sense so, is that we're going to see almost right away a, a, a major central push for vaccination. Yes, that's that's also my... They my have to. Yeah. If, 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 yeah. if they don't do that, there's no plan B. Yeah. yeah. So there's already like a pilot program uh, in, in Shanghai rolling out, right, in right. terms of uh, vaccination uh, promotion. And also, I don't know. So, I mean, I have admit my thinking on zero COVID has evolved gradually over the past years. I think now I have more empathy to the Chinese approach. The truth is there's no easy answer for China. Um, you know, the, 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 the China has a significant elder population, and they tend to you know, population tend to be denser in areas where, uh, you know, health and, and, and medical resources are not sufficient. And I think from the models I, I see, if you open up China, you're looking at tens of thousands or even, you know, close to a million deaths within five months or right. half a year. Well over, so, well over. Yeah. So that's, you know, it's, it's not an easy choice for China. But on the other hand, if you look at the, the, the economy now, clearly the zero COVID approach is not sustainable. So there has to be some sort of an access strategy. There has to be some sort of an off-ramp. But uh, I mean, I, I, you know, Xi Jinping is, is in no easy position. There's no easy answer to those questions, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's turn now to that final um, topic that, that, again, it's it's the first one for some reason that everyone seems to think that I would have some kind of an answer to, which is what do we now uh, assume about Xi Jinping's intentions vis-a-vis Taiwan after this party congress? Is there anything we can discern? I mean, is, is there any reason to believe that anything has changed? Damien, you want to weigh in on that? <laughs> See, I, you're making the same face I always make yeah. when I get asked this. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 obviously top of mind for a lot of people in both capitals, in Washington D.C. for sure, and and of course in Beijing. Um, I would just say that uh, uh, you know um, Taiwan has it's it's been an omnipresent risk, right? So if you think about it as sort of always kind of be you know there. Um, uh, as sort of one of those, you might call it a fat tail risk, you know, low probability, uh, high impact uh, um, type of risks. Um, I think it's reasonable to say, you know, to believe that that tail gets a little bit fatter okay. in the next, uh, uh, you know, a few years because in part just because there are tons of known unknowns, to quote Donald Rumsfeld. Mm-hmm. Um, Which you, I know you love to do. A lot of factors, right, uh, that, that are in play that is extremely hard to game out. Uh, and I'm not sure, you know, uh, pure rational actor models are going to really hold here mm-hmm. because when it comes to, you know, sovereignty and, you know, for, you know, for a lot of Chinese people, Taiwan is viewed as a domestic issue, not a foreign policy right. issue for a lot of Chinese people on mainland. And we can agree or disagree with that, but that doesn't change the view That's right. uh, in Beijing and on the mainland. That's right. Too. Look at Damien doing the cognitive empathy thing. Right. All right. But, uh, Lizzie, I mean, to, par- to, yeah, to, to paraphrase Chris Johnson, I think China still views Taiwan as a crisis to avoid, not an opportunity to seize on. So I think that's exactly correct. Right. And but I would just say one thing. I keep hearing from Beijing I mean, China scholars that they increase, they are increasingly view United States' intention with 
suspicion. Um, the 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 I mean the word I hear is they think the United States is hyping up the 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 crisis, uh, the upper, I mean the, the the you know the danger of war to provoke Beijing to actually take some sort of an action, and that's a trap that Beijing should avoid falling into. So um, you know the 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 word I keep hearing is zhang dui ding li, just to to keep stable, uh, to not be lured. By the trap set up by the United States, of course, that's a Chinese point of view. But I think that's reassuring in a sense that um, it's not like Xi Jinping has, has already uh, planned out armed reunification with Taiwan. I think China is still sort of acting with restraint, restraint, or trying to avoid, you know, um, going into a war there. But I will say there are two scenarios that are likely. Scary for for China and for Taiwan and for the world. First is if pro independence um, power in Taiwan actually declare independence, that's going to be a turning point for Beijing. Or if the United States actually gave up um, its current stance on Taiwan and offered direct promise to support Taiwan militarily, I think those are the two scenarios that would actually, you know. Provoke, provoke the situation actually, yeah, in, in, yeah. into something more. Dangerous. Uh, I think in, in the near term, uh, we have we're going to get some indicators as how many Congress people are going to go there. Yeah, you know, uh, I think uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be interviewing Mike Mazar, who mm-hmm. is at at uh, Rand and recently wrote a book called Leap of Faith, which is an, a real exegesis on the whole run up to Iraq. And he has a sort of haunting paragraph toward the very end where he basically says. The same thing is happening now, right now. Uh, we're sort of beating that same drum and, and prepping everybody. We're, we're doing the same sort of manufacturing of consent. We have the Judith Millers in our, own, in our own media right now who are preparing the American population for something like a war with China over Taiwan. And this is truly, truly horrifying to me. All right, on that very happy note, um, let, me, let me thank Matt Abbott for helping out uh, to set this up in, here at the Chicago Council, uh, and uh, what a delight to see you guys both. Before we, we uh, move on to recommendations, let me quickly remind everybody that the Seneca Podcast is produced in partnership with The China Project, and if you want to support the work that we do with our uh, flagship podcast, Seneca, or with any of the other shows in the network, really the, the, the thing to do is to subscribe to access. One of the things that it gets you is early access to this show. I edit it on Monday and and put it out by Monday afternoon for subscribers only. And the rest of you chumps have to wait three days until Thursday before you can listen to the thing. So all you need to do is pony up a little money, you get this fantastic newsletter and uh, early access to this very program. All right, guys, you've had time to think. Let's start with Lizzie to give Damien a little more time. What do you have to recommend for this? Damien, do you want to? No, Lizzie, you go so, first. Okay, so I have to recommend uh, Joseph Turijian. Is that the, the, the correct way to pronounce Turijin, his last yeah. name? His Chinese name is Tang Zhijue, by the way. He wrote a fantastic book, uh, Prestige, Manipulation, and Coercion, Elite Power Struggles in the Soviet Union and China after Stalin and Mao. I think the, the catchphrase from the book I remember is, uh, you know, Chinese politics are not a popularity contest. <laughs> Sometimes it's just raw power struggle. Uh, that's a that's a the the you know the the the, the sentence to 
take away. It's a it's a tremendously interesting book, and has sold out multiple times to our surprise. I have to check with Joseph if he bought all his own book and brag to his friends. Yeah, I I I've got a copy of it. It's probably worth a lot more now. Yay! I got to send it back to Joseph and have him autograph it because he's his star is rising. Apparently, he's. He's he's really he's everywhere now. It seems like I I actually uh, re-listened to a fantastic interview that Jude Blanchett did with him. Uh, I don't know if you've heard that on his on his Peking Knowledge Pekingology podcast. It's it's really good. All right, good good recommendation. And actually, Joseph is going to be on Seneca before too long. I'm finishing the book and then I'll interview him. Yeah, Kaiser, make sure to pop quiz him on like Chinese. I will. I will. Although he's going to show me up. I mean, I know like. Like three Chung Yu, so Joseph knows four. Okay, good. All right, only four. I'll learn one more before I, I do the interview. A really good one. All right, what you got, Damien? I always forget about this part, so I never come prepared with a, a pre-baked idea. So on the spot, um, and I have a knack of, I think, recommending things that are non-China related. So good. I'm going to keep it. up keep up that record. Uh, I'm currently getting through uh, Brad DeLong's book, Slouching Towards Utopia, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is uh, economic history of the 20th century which I think is quite interesting, actually, to think about our recent past. Uh, and uh, so far, it's been, it's, been, it's been very good. So I would recommend uh, that particular book. It's a pretty fairly, it's a fairly large tome. So Yeah, I mean, he's a really good stylist. His writing is interesting, and, and his ideas are really original. And he's a you know, prolific blogger. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I read him a lot online. Brad DeLong's book, Slouching Toward Utopia. Utopia. We're not there yet. We're just slouching <laughs> We're towards it. slouching toward it. Um, my recommendation is for actually it is something China related for once. Um, I mean, usually it's some frivolous thing or you know a, 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 my latest obsession, but um, it's the latest radio open source podcast. Uh, it's on Taiwan, notionally, so it, it features uh, Shelley Rigger, who of course I absolutely adore, and Lev Nachman, who's uh, there in, in in Taipei and very very smart. It's also got a, a long interview with uh, with Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey, which. Um, <laughs> well, listen to it, you'll see. I mean, it's it's kind of. But best of all, uh, as much as I love Shelley um, and and love, it's Jake Werner who really kind of bats clean up on this and he does this fantastic. I mean, he's it's just one profound and deeply insightful thing after another. Uh, he he was just full of really brilliant ideas. So Jake, if you were listening, kudos, you freaking killed it. Uh, it was fantastic. He's right here in Chicago, by the way. All right. Thank you both. Lizzie. Great to be here. Yeah. Damien. You are welcome. Thank you. All right. What a fun time. And um, I'm looking forward to the rest of this weekend here in Chicago. All right, folks. The Seneca Podcast is powered by The China Project and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaja Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at thechinaproject.com or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Uh, if you give us good reviews, that is. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at The China Proj. And be sure to check out all the other shows in the Seneca Network. Uh, we've got lots of really good shows. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.